Thanks for tuning in to Breaking the Frame, where we seek to free our minds from the prison of fixed worldviews. In this episode, I speak with Raven Connolly, a philosophy enthusiast and frequent contributor to the STOA. We speak about the state of affairs in Portland, her experiences learning under Brett Weinstein, and the psycho-spiritual realm of womanhood. I hope you enjoy. So, yeah, we're here with Raven Connolly. Uh, Raven is a frequent contributor to the STOA. And, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to her today about uh, various things, psychedelics and feminism and uh, the State of the Union in Portland. Maybe we'll start there. So you're in Portland right now. Things are crazy and wild. Can you kind of give some insight into maybe some of the wild, the more frame-breaking experiences that you've had in Portland? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Well, you know, it's interesting. I think living in Oregon uh, has been kind of like, it's like being at the epicenter of what is a general kind of metaphysical uh, battle of maybe, let's say, the gods, let's say, uh, (laughs) of like the alt-left and the alt-right, you know, come Uh flashing in the streets. And I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. And so I've seen these types of conflicts happening throughout throughout my upbringing. I went to the Evergreen State College, uh, where I was friends with many anarchists. At one time, identified myself as an anarchist, and um, so I've seen I've seen it all. I've seen people like getting notifications that the right was going to come to town and getting their gear together and getting everyone together and having all the signal groups and the medics come out. So I understand um, the spirit that it kind of holds in the radical leftist communities in the Northwest. And to see that kind of come to a head has been really interesting because for them, I mean, they've been waiting for this moment. They really have. They've been preparing for this moment for years, some people decades, um, kind of maintaining their organizations and resisting the power structures uh, here. And so now it's just kind of really excessive, something that had been part of the culture, but had been relatively contained because there were other people living their day-to-day lives, um, you know, filling parks and streets with general human activity, um, basically kind of renegated those clashes to very specific events but of course with lockdown uh and quarantine all of those other kinds of activities have now you know dissolved and people are the kind of normal everyday people are stuck in their homes and it left the streets open you know a territory Mm -hmm. that the anarchists already feel like is theirs you know and so i think that with the igniting of the the moment uh, with the George Floyd protests that really was just kind of blowing uh, the candle to create a huge flame uh, that basically sustained itself in Portland for over a hundred days of protesting over the summer. Has Um, it calmed down at all? Yeah. It has. Okay. Oh yeah. The fires really helped. Okay. Ironically, right. It's so funny. Um, 
you know, the, the authorities, like the human authorities, the police, have not really contained the, the protests. Uh, and that's because of like political dynamics between the mayor and him also being the chief of police and some weird things about the structure of the city of Portland. And uh, he's been basically very, uh, some might say lenient, I guess. <laughs> but other people would say he's still a bad guy. Um, so I don't know. It really depends on your perspective when it yeah. comes to when it comes to that. But the fires uh, and the smoke was so bad that nobody could go outside. And that really, um, I think, caused a hard stop uh, with with the protests. And they haven't really picked back up super feverishly as of yet. But I think that's also because there have been federal officers doing very targeted arrests of organizers. So I think that that's also a factor in why people aren't back in the streets. Yeah. Disappearing, some would call it. Uh, disappearing people off the streets. I saw some videos that felt like that. Uh, do you, was there a sense that like the the right was always preparing for this too? I remember there was a an armed conflict between federal officers and uh, people on the right that wanted to occupy, what was it, state land? It was cattle ranchers. I forget the the family's name, but mm-hmm. was that kind of the, the event that catalyzed the right or is that something that's been going on in, in Washington long before that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it, it's interesting. We have kind of a narrow view of, the right, I would at least split them into two factions. One faction would be your establishment Republicans, people who still believe in governance and like the prop, like the principles of, of liberty and authority and um, the institution of the United States government is central to their belief system. But then there's a whole other side of the right that is very suspicious of government. Yes doesn't matter whose government it is. doesn't matter if there's a Republican in office or a Democrat in office. Uh, and, you know, here there's the, obviously in many states uh, across the country, there is a rural urban divide that uh, can kind of be the thread that you can see uh, in terms of conflict of governance. But here in Oregon, there is a huge kind of militant anti-government faction of of the right that is very organized. I think most of the time, unless you tread on their sense of liberty, they pretty much stay to to themselves. But because of shifting policies and probably what they would consider to be intrusion onto their way of life, they do have this very uh, kind of aggressive and militant wing that will sometimes take action against the government or against other people like Antifa or BLM um, or, you know, the people of the kind of cities uh, that are trying to, you know, intrude on their way of being out in like the most rural parts of Oregon that like nobody goes to. (laughs) So yeah, no, the conflict is there. Yeah. 
It's a wild thing. In Michigan, we have like uh, the militias mm-hmm. and that just tried to execute a plan to to kidnap Governor Whitmer, but we don't have the same sort of left politics out here. Uh, most of that would be coming from like University of Michigan, and those are pretty much they're hippies. They aren't like the anarchist left or anything of that nature. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's pretty interesting. So when you were at Evergreen State, you, I saw you post on Twitter that your, one of your professors was Brett Weinstein. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Were you there when, uh, kind of all the stuff went down with, uh, so I just started reading about this. Could you kind of describe what happened and what it was like being there? You know, what was your experience of that? Sure. Yeah. Oh, yes. Well, you know, it's funny because I haven't really corrected my story uh, with what people view it as from the outside. Um, There's very much like a kind of internal or, you know, a from within perspective that I hold. And a lot of that just comes from knowing Brett and Heather so well. At the time, I wasn't in Brett's class. I was in a whole different wing of the college, taking ceramics and woodworking and doing a different kind of uh, investigation at the time. But what we've been following over the course of the year was a conflict that had to do with power shifting in the school. And we had a new president that that was hired and he was bringing in new policy changes. Evergreen, is a college that was founded on the principle of faculty really driving the curriculum. And it has an interdisciplinary structure where you take one 16 credit program with two professors and those two professors design that program themselves. There's no, you know, um, authoritative kind of structure from the college itself that, you know, requires teachers to, have a certain pedagogical approach. So Evergreen was like this place where if you really wanted to do kind of creative curriculum and dig into the nuances between subjects and kind of break down the very specialized way that academia has formed itself, particularly over the last 100 years in America, um, Evergreen was a great college to teach at for those reasons. And Brett and Heather took full advantage of this. And I can I can personally attest to how well designed their programs were. I mean, Heather in particular is just like an incredible curriculum designer. She would draw in all of these different threads and synthesize all these different subject matters. They had all sorts of different ways of getting into the material through theory, through research, through activities through self-directed projects um, that were all very unique to their specific learning uh, intentions. And for the class itself, there's a lot of very organic interaction between the professors and the students. And the administration was beginning to want to encroach on faculties, uh, you know, authority in the classroom. And Brett was really voicing discontent about those changes. And what he was pointing out that became so volatile 
was that it was being cloaked in the language of diversity and inclusion in order to basically, as a Trojan horse, bring in these policy changes that would end up undermining the creative authority that professors had in their classrooms, which he was vehemently against. So he was coming out kind of in two primary ways. One was, look, look at what they're doing. Look at this Trojan horse. (laughs) Don't fall for it. And then the second one was like, they're using the language of diversity and inclusion to to basically to like past this, uh, you know, sacred cow so that nobody can say anything about it. And everyone just fell in line, like all the professors, you know, all of the administrators, even most of the student body just completely fell in line with the narrative. Uh, And he became the scapegoat of everyone's hatred. It was incredible to watch. Like, it was really incredible. So contentious. Um, Like the, my dissonant views, I mean, at the time I was really caught between two worlds like I was both close to them and they had really both of them had really shown up for me during some very like personal um changes that were going on in my life and had really been very I mean that's how they were they were really involved with their students when their students opened up to them and um yeah I had trust for them and with them that went beyond just like the kind of relationship that teachers may have with their students and so to watch everyone treat Brett in particular with such suspicion was really wild uh but at the same time I was living with a bunch of anarchists (laughs) they were going to protest him they were going to protest him that's that's interesting that's an interesting thing about you know the a lot of aspects of the the maybe we could call them the libertarian left right that there's they rail against the uh authoritarian impulses of institutions and yet sociocultural forces that might be uh, authoritarian or oppressive those things are oftentimes embraced um ideological you know ideological authoritarianism like you have to believe this that sort of thing looms large like are you a a true believer in Uh in this ideology or or this approach if you're not then we probably can't trust you and i think that that's born of real risks especially for like anarchists for example right they're enemies of the state Largely. And so you got to be careful about who you trust, especially if you're plotting things to try to advance the anarchist ideology. So there are certain kind of acid tests like or litmus tests, whatever you want to call them, to are you really one of us? Do you actually believe these sorts of things? And those are embraced out of necessity to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff, to use a biblical reference. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. What were some of the, uh, what were the educational intentions of the programs that you took while you were at Evergreen State? You said you were doing like woodworking and ceramics and was that just part of it or were you doing 
other things. I mean, you're obviously very involved and interested in philosophy now. Was that born of your university experience or is that a personal interest? Yeah, I didn't touch philosophy while I was at Evergreen. I think I had some really intuitive, unconscious allergies to certain kinds of communities. Um, so, and that included classrooms. So the benefit that I got from being in classes with Brett and Heather, which was, you know, a lot of stress testing of ideas, they had this beautiful way of being able to push their students to kind of examine their assumptions and think through different kinds of paradoxes. Brett was particularly good at this, where he would, you would come to him with a question and he would answer you with a riddle and you wouldn't be able to crack it, you know, in conversation with him. So they would just like lodge in your mind, this like paradox and you just like turn it around, turn it around, turn it around until finally you'd have this moment where you're like, oh, that, is that what he's saying? <laughs> like, <laughs> like what? He's become so much more clear in his recent content with the public. But when he was a professor, oh my God, it was just like impossible to get a straight answer out of him. He was totally elusive. And so his, his strategy really was, if you want to know something and you want to ask me, like, we're going to engage in this play. And through this play, you will have to learn for yourself. And I will be here to kind of, you know, volley with you, but I am not the one who has the answers. Um, and that was sometimes very frustrating for students because they wanted to go up and, you know, ask the question and get the answer, uh, which is certainly a kind of way of approaching school that seems very commodified to me. Like here I am, I am the, you know, I'm the customer and I'm purchasing my education. And that means the teacher is the one who is, you know, I'm buying the service from. And so if I have a question, then they are obligated to answer me in a way that I can understand so that uh, my transaction is being fulfilled. And of course, that's not historically the way teaching has been approached. I mean, you, you hear about the stories of Zen masters who, you know, someone, some monk comes to ask them a question and they believe even more confused than when they came. Um, and I think Brett definitely had that kind of approach. Um, but then there were other classrooms, especially in like media studies, that were very into identity politics and critical race theory, very into um, the theories of like queerness and like disability politics, very politically oriented. Um, and those were kinds of their own cults of personality. Uh, while there were cults of personality around like Brett and Heather, there were cults of personality around other professors. Um, who taught different kinds of things. And I just had the good sense to stay away from it. I don't know. I really don't know. I could have easily gone a different way. I, I, I'm, I, I, I'm baffled in many ways that I just like had the good fortune to sniff out a different path. And, um, and I, I mean, I, I have like a kind of psychological, maybe counter factual or like, be like maybe it was this thing or maybe it was that thing but ultimately I don't really know um some of us just were attracted to what Brett and Heather were bringing to the table and ultimately it's ended up being whatever that force is that's been the kind of golden thread 
that I've been following as I continue to do intellectual inquiry in my life. And it's become much more prominent. It's become much more clear that curiosity and independent thought is really the thread that I wish to pull. And I become I could become closer to it, you know, every day as I continue to interrogate um, the mysteries of of the world that we have inherited. What are some of the key questions that you've asked as you've been pulling on the thread? Yeah. Um, well, right now, uh, I've been thinking a lot about eggs. Eggs. Mm-hmm. About eggs. Um, Edible kind, the yeah. fertilizable kind. I the- mean, aren't they kind of the same? <laughs> they are, yeah, they are. But I mean, at some point, I think that there is a, I think that they change. Uh, there's something yeah. that, yeah, at some point, they're no longer the fertilizable eggs and they turn into the edible kind. Yeah, yeah, they, they do. They seem to occupy different categories in our they minds. Their sterility, their sterility, having been separated from their place of fertilization, they become sterile. And that, and that way they become edible. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, right now, and especially since COVID hit, which has been a, an interesting experience to just have all of the kind of distractions and pulls of day-to-day life very suddenly just disappear, um, has really brought me into relationship to my body and being in, in the condition of the female body and what that really means, um, what the potential of my body is and uh, what it holds kind of symbolically or metaphysically. I've been reading Sexual Persona by Camille Paglia over the last months, like with a reading group. So I've been kind of investigating all of these different sexual persona and particularly how women, the concepts and uh, character associations with women have changed throughout the Western canon. And also the hermaphrodite, of course, the androgen, the go-between, and then the male, also the, the masculine principle changing. And I'm finding myself drawn into questions about what it means to be a woman more and more than I ever have before. And part of, part of that is just almost defiance. <laughs> Defiance of what? Oh my God. I mean, I just think Everything. that. Uh, I think that there's so much confusion about what it is to be a human, um, what it is to have a body, to be a body. I mean, to, to be in the process of becoming through a body. Uh, and it, it could be that our Cartesian dualism has finally reached this like peak schizophrenia. Uh, especially with the kind of imminence of that form in the internet, right? Where our heads are cut off and our, you know, avatars are just these kind of like floating faces. Uh, And how that splits, you know, our experiences, how our minds are creating a sense of what the world is because we've leapt into this like, this space that is, only metaphorically a space and that's what's so strange about the internet it's only metaphorically spatial because we are spatial entities and so it interfaces into our existence 
uh, in this way where we think we're coming to grasp what it is, but in fact, there is an illusory quality to it. And it's, it's withdrawing its, its, its real nature and manipulating us. And I think that that um, aspect of our experience as, as humans has really become accentuated also due to coronavirus. Um, and in the meantime, right, we're facing a plague, which you would think would bring people more intensely into the body. Um, and I think for some of us, it has. I think it's interesting to see um, conversations about embodiment becoming so popular in certain communities online, while simultaneously people are increasingly leaving behind their bodies and actually bringing the internet world into reality, which is, of course, also what I see happening on the streets of Portland. Um, but yeah. Mm. So you think that maybe people, let's let's pull on that thread a little bit. The people who are going out into the streets in Portland, they're maybe what, like downloading a mind from the internet that maybe is disembodied and then they take that with them out onto the streets that that mind and they further cultivate it and they commune with other people who have downloaded the same mind mindset we could call it right and then those those disembodied mindsets that largely only exist on the internet you know like all of these sociocultural forces that are discussed on the internet, those don't show up in the same way in interpersonal relationships between just two people, right? The, a lot of the talk right now is not about one-on-one uh, -on -one conflict between people of different genders, people of different races. It's about the systemic. And the systemic is a disembodied, it's a disembodied entity, right? The system is not, made up of any corporeal form the system is just out there and so you download some aspect of the system into your mind and then go out into the street and try to actualize it realize that is that what you're referring to or did i just make all of that up <laughs> no i think that that's really um spot on i would say what's interesting about the structure of thought that we find ourselves kind of interfacing with is exactly what you pointed out um anything that is be systemic is inherently abstract it's inherently gesturing at some sort of uh elusive force it's like slippery it can't be it can't be really held and so i think it's interesting how it basically creates this uh cascading effect where you can see the manifestations of this kind of withdrawn force in all of these small circumstances and that's what becomes this uh it's almost like a perverse scapegoating mechanism where instead of the community coming together around a single entity that kind of symbolizes all of the hostility of the community and in one moment you just you know crucify that one individual and then you have release and then you have this moment where you can actually go back to your day-to-day -day life and existence. It's almost like eating fast food, right? Where it's like, you're not satiated when you persecute someone because they only elusively represent this abstract 
quality of the systemic patterns that are replicating themselves um, in the imminence of our, our human existence. So it's, it's like a, it's a furnace and the people who are persecuted become the fuel. Uh, and so it just continues to churn and churn and churn without having much of an end in sight. You know, I, I don't know what ultimately will come to stop these forces besides individual people just refusing to acquiesce, refusing to be scapegoated, um, refusing to be persecuted by it. I think that that's why there's been a kind of emergence of the badge of honor for going um, through cancel culture, right? You kind of, the first time it happens to you, I think people get freaked out. They go through this like arc, um, which I completely understand. I fear it myself, right? Uh, and then you get through the other side and then you get to join all these other people who've already gone through it. And then they get to the other side like, oh, you know, actually now we're kind of protected from this. Yeah. We can yeah. we can just do and say and be however we want to. And in fact, there are a lot of people who will follow our content and give us money. And there's a whole other side, which, of course, the left calls like, you know, neo-reactionary or the alt-right or whatever. Like, basically, if you pass through cancel culture to the other side, you've become like a deplorable. And it doesn't matter that the people who've been canceled, if that's your kind of categorization for them you're talking about the most diverse group of people i think you, <laughs> you could ever think of yeah. their opinions yeah. are so widely widely like distributed amongst all sorts of different um like underlying ontologies perspectives on human nature prescriptions for how we you know live in the world like it's a very diverse group of people and yet all of us are you know or all of those people are called like right you know like, yep it's an interesting thing because there are though economic forces that can incentivize people to lean into the accusations that have been leveled against them in order to draw the so let's say that maybe they started off uh listening to their better angels and trying to speak up for what they thought was right or true or at least shine light on a different perspective on a situation where maybe they thought that the dominant narrative was lacking. And then they get accused of being the enemy. And then they see that maybe there's some benefit in being the enemy, right? I can marshal forces of the other enemies. And so they start to lean into that and they get incentivized. I think that that's a little bit of kind of what we're seeing is on both sides, people leaning into the caricatures that the other side painted for them as a, a badge of identification of like, yeah, fine, I'll be what you say that I am so that I can be loud and proud and say, you know, anybody else who agrees with me, come, you know, this is kind of the culture war grift that has been talked about before. It's like, yeah, come and give me your money. I'll be what they say I am. Uh, it's an interesting thing that is happening right now, pushing people to both ends. So how does this all relate to eggs? I'm still <laughs> trying to get it. <laughs> how does that relate to eggs? Well, um, I'm really pretty, um, I think I've been failed by feminism uh, personally. So I don't 
And I feel like there's this really, like there's this ripe kind of uh, fertile uh, area, not only for investigations that are political or like, you know, moral or whatever, which I actually am like, not that interested in. Um, I think that that's like one of the last things you get to if you're building a new worldview. Your political engagement is like the final step. <laughs> but first you have to think about, you know, your ontology. Like what is the what is this world that we're in? And, you know, I've been into philosophy pretty, pretty aggressively uh, since I graduated college. And I I love it. I like live and breathe it. I'm endlessly curious about what people have been thinking over the millennia and how they've really related to questions of human nature, of principles of the universe, uh, you know, metaphysics, epistemology, all of these things. And there's been certain topics that haven't really been covered. And those which are related to the principle of femininity from the from the female perspective have really not been spoken about that much that's just a, like that's just a fact you know what i mean like i'm not trying to say that as some sort of crusader for like equity i could i really don't care that much about that it's more just that we live in a time where women are having to examine who they are uh, with a whole different set of choices at the table for who to become. And you have to have curiosity to reach in and try and understand internally that which you are becoming that arises out of the condition of your body and also understand how these things have been either uh, left, like, you know, represented or I don't even want to use that word. How do I say this? How people in the how women of the past have understood themselves and that is really has been very related to fertility and also how men have related to women as well and that's very 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 important and then I also come from a perspective rooted in evolutionary biology and evolutionary theory but I'm not you know keeping myself merely to a scientific inquiry about these things so I'm interested in the poetic and the mythic. And we talk about, you know, the feminine principle as chaos, as, uh, you know, the Dionysian, um, as the anima, as in young. Uh, and I think that that is almost a certain, it's like a certain aspect of the feminine, but it's not quite the egg. It's not quite the egg. And the egg to me is where it all begins. You know, it begins at this asymmetry at the bottom of sex, that you have a single form, that the male and the female of any of any species is the same form. They're of the same substance, but they are split into two asymmetrical beings that have to find each other. They have to travel vast distances to come together in a, in a, in the most intimate of ways and that kind of individual being has to be sacrificed to create the unity of one 
And that's what brings forth the future. So this asymmetry of sex is what I'm principally interested in. And the egg is, I'm privileging the egg for my own, for my own, like, you know, purposes. (laughs) It's more relevant to you. I would say probably. It is. I have them. I've carried my eggs with me my whole life since I was in the womb. And I think that that in and of itself is this fascinating difference between men and women. And of course, the thing about it is the male and the female, it's it's like there are differences, obviously, but like you're looking at these, you know, minute differences most of the time. It's like in reality, like we're all human. But if you're within the human context or within any any species, um, and you're looking at the dynamics between the two aspects of that single species, confronting the differences of sex, I think, is one of the most intriguing uh, questions to be investigating. So that's kind of how the egg fits in, I suppose. I like it. I like it. It's an interesting time to be thinking about that, especially with uh, with quarantine and the lack of sex that a lot of people are experiencing due to much, much lower uh, in-person uh, contact and activity. And so it's kind of a – let's talk about evolutionary biology for a second and and maybe make a reductive claim that – a lot of our our behavior is driven by a desire to reproduce. Let's just throw that out there as a as a framing, uh, yeah. just for the sake of argument right now. Maybe we, we could can argue against on that. Yeah. So with that <laughs> being the case, and with this kind of prohib this uh, this prohibitive constraint, it's not an enabling constraint whatsoever for us getting achieving those ends. This is a very interesting time for us to examine what does it mean to be uh, a human who desires to engage in sex, engage in reproduction. Uh, Yeah, it's very interesting. It is. Yeah, it is an interesting time because in many in many senses, we've become involuntarily involuntarily celibate. We've all become incels. but also there's an opportunity there to examine uh, like what, you know, what has sex become? What has sex become? I mean, it's, it's really changed. And a lot of that has to do with the shift in risk that women um, have inherited via technology. And the fact that now with taking on birth control and having, being effectively sterile, like sterilizing oneself, uh, basically taking on a different kind of form, a form that doesn't quite have all of its secondary sex characteristics. And in doing so, extending uh, this this period of, I mean, I would say it extends this period of, of adolescence almost to not take on the responsibility of a body that can be fertilized and it's not something that all women want. And, and this is something that I've, I've been investigating as well, which is uh, women who choose to not engage in marriage. Um, so in history, we've had nuns or we've had priestesses or different kinds of female figures, the spinster, you know, the, the woman who never married. 
uh, often lived with another woman, <laughs> is definitely a, a, a character and an archetype. Um, but also barrenness has been something I've been thinking a lot about. So women who are sterile in an involuntary way and how that has worn on, on people, on, on women's like souls throughout history and how they've approached living as barren women. Um, so I, which I, I think a, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I have a funny story about that. When I was like very, I was middle, uh, middle school or something. I remember the day that it dawned on me that like there, I was surrounded by these women and they had this capacity to give birth. And I was very vocal with the internal, my internal monologue. And I said it out loud to a girl who was sitting next to me. I said, isn't that incredible? Like that, like you could have a baby. And she said, well, I actually can't. And I remember I was just mortified that I had, you know, stuck my foot in my mouth in that way and kind of shine a light on something that was so personal just because of my internal musings. So that's, I have a very personal, uh, personal relationship with that experience. It was not, it was not pleasant. Um, yeah. It's a very sensitive topic. It is. And I think you can see that also in the discourse around who is a woman. So obviously the word woman has been very contested as to who even has a relationship to that label. And it's interesting, at least the way that I've been kind of thinking about this, because I, it, it's a delicate space. I, I accept the idea that there are trans women. And yet I also do not want to exclude myself from talking about issues of womanhood that a trans woman would not be able to understand. And that's also why the ache becomes an important focus for me rather than uh, the uterus or the vagina uh, or the vulva. Those are all things that, I mean, now even, um, maybe not quite the uterus, but uh, the vagina can actually be constructed and you can you can take on a vagina uh, without having been born with one. But the egg remains elusive. You cannot just have an egg, <laughs> you know, in the same sense. And that aspect of the egg, of having an egg, or being being fertile or having the potential for fertility. And that's another question for me. What is fertility? But maybe we'll put that aside for now. But barrenness as something that women have wrestled with for throughout history for, for millennia, I think is a really rich place for understanding being trans, um, being a trans woman. And I'm like very curious about that. I haven't like really brought that forth in totally I kind of had the conversations here and there about it and people are like oh that's really interesting I had never like really thought about it in that way but I find that that's maybe a possible way that the conversation can go from being animosity towards people who are breeders to actually an invitation 
into the conversation that women have been having amongst themselves throughout history about and and the conflict that women have been having internally around who can bring forth children and who cannot who brings forth the right children boys you know and and who bring forth the wrong ones girls principally um like all of those things have been part of the lives of women for millennia and yet you know the way that the conversation is going nowadays it's like we've forgotten that birth has never been a right it's always been an act of fortune and so the pain that someone feels when they can't give forth life or they're not totally you know a woman let's say it's like it's like yeah talk to your great 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 grandmothers like you know they had sisters that weren't able to give birth and they had to work work with them through that so that's something that i'm also working on is like how can we bridge all of these different ways that people are relating to this idea of being a woman and actually include based on historical very deep historical questions and conditions yeah what do you think are some of the psycho spiritual uh ramifications of that uh both the induced sterility that comes with birth control or the uh the experience of like a trans woman for example of you know having this internal experience of being a woman and not not giving birth having that not be an aspect of her experience what do you think the you know the what are we dealing with here in terms of the decoupling of sex from reproduction in terms of how that affects the minds of women you talk you spoke about like uh not having that responsibility thrust on you and there are there are ways in which responsibility being thrust on you is both a can be a hindrance but it also can be a significant growth opportunity and so by stopping that temporarily or permanently there are certain changes in your experience of being a woman that will be put off for a long time i was thinking the other day about uh you know the way that reproduction used to go in human societies people very young very very young pretty much as soon as you were able you would start to give birth and we didn't deal with the same uh socioeconomic issues that we deal with now of not being able to raise a child so young because of the education system and not being able to get a job where you can afford it, those sorts of things. Back then there were, you know, tribal mechanisms that enabled you to have children very young. And that was the way of things. Now we put that off significantly. I mean, what do you think the, the ramifications of that are for the, the psychic development of women nowadays? Yeah. Well, I think you went going back to that uh, question you asked me <laughs> earlier. This is one of the questions. It's very, very big. Um, it, I mean, I can. I think its investigation could last a lifetime. Um, but I think very generally, the picture that I'm seeing is that there is an unconscious force acting in this dimension which is a lot of confronting kind of 
these changes in not only the technological interventions that we can make into our bodies, but also like you're saying, the social and economic opportunities and conditions that we all have, you know, um, men are also delaying families and, uh, you know, they have to be with a woman or be in a situation where they can uh, find the possibility of having a child. But this is something that both men and women do share and are delaying. And it's, I think, a matter for me of the danger of mimesis. So I do think that there seems to be a kind of force that is arising from people internally that is telling them not to have children. And I think that those people should listen to that. That has been also a common aspect of human life. And, and there have been, you know, those who take a vow of chastity and they become the shamans or they become the monks or um, they live a different kind of life than the rest of society. And those people are out there. And you would imagine that there would be more total numbers of them now that we live in a world with so many people. Um, but I think the problem is that women have really been encouraged to see themselves as working for their careers um, and to taking taking on the responsibilities and the roles of men in society. And I think it's pretty, I don't know, uh, reasonable to admit that the public sphere and the sphere of work has been defined by men and has been made in relationship to the kind of body that they have. The fact that they aren't the ones that carry life. That their um, form, once they take on all of their secondary sex characteristics, pretty much stays consistent throughout their life. Their fertility really doesn't change that much. It's like once you move into your male form, it's kind of as long as you take care of it, you're pretty good for like decades. Whereas a female, a, a female body, I mean, it's like, it's, it's just change all the time. It's just continuous change. Like over the course of my life, I'm going to be many different women, many different women. I've already been many different women. And that's something that arises out of my body because I have, I mean, I haven't interfered with my cycle. So I just like, let it come. And it comes and I'm like, whoa, my consciousness is like, what the hell? You know, because consciousness is always kind of trailing behind a little bit. Um, and like observing and being like, what is happening here? And fertility <laughs> for women is like, it, it has a trajectory. It has a peak and it has a decline. And your hormones change in relationship to that. And there's a kind of window that a woman has to take up the opportunity to seize if she's going to kind of enact the full potential of the fertility that is latent in her body, that she may have actually intervened in creating, you know, closing the gates, let's say, and making it impossible for that fertility to actually come forth um, in, in the reality of, of in, impregnation, implantation, and subsequently birth. 
And there is a kind of mutually exclusive situation with the way that our labor is viewed and the social views uh, also that come along with that. Um, like, I, I don't know, for just a personal example, my grandmother, uh, I was talking to her the other, other week and I was telling her that, you know, I'm principally interested in having a family and that I'm prioritizing that. So I'm interested in finding a long-term partner and getting married and starting to have children. And my grandmother, who for work has been very, very important to her for her whole life. You know, she was that kind of first generation of women that really took to the workforce and were able to build their own wealth. Um, she bought her own house. You know, she paid for the, her children's education with her own money. Like it was very important for her that she was a woman that worked and was able to provide for herself and didn't need her husband the way that her mother had needed her husband. And when she heard me, she's like, what? <laughs> and, and, this is my, and this is my grandmother, right? So that's the other thing. It's multiple generations. Um, and my mom, she passed away. Actually, that's like the thing that happened to me while I was in school with Brett and Heather. Um, so I don't know what she would say to that, but I think she would be just like scratching her head. Like, what the hell are you doing, girl? Like, she she was also a career woman. She really was so dedicated to work. Like, she had a child, me, by accident. You know, and I don't know that she would have had a child without that um, accidental nature uh, to it. And, you know, I just have a different view. I've And this goes back to the mimesis, right? Uh, so in in my world, had I never questioned that I was supposed to go to work, and I was supposed to work on a career, and that I was supposed to take on this understanding of myself as essentially male, um, just with this, you know, different reproductive system, I maybe would have led myself into a great deal of suffering. And I think that that's the thing that women are uh, not surfacing early enough. They're waiting for the for the moment where the drive to have a child becomes so strong that it hits them. And basically they can't even focus on work. They can't even focus on the things that have, bec have been important to them because there's this physical drive that's arising out of their body that comes into their mind. And the fantasy is so strong that they'll go to so such crazy lengths to make it happen. And, and you're seeing this borne out in the fertility industry. And I mean, we were talking earlier about charlatans, like, Oh my God, there is so much exploitation and just snake oil in the fertility industry. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that women are delaying having children and even checking up or paying attention to their fertility until they're in their late thirties. And then once they get there, they're like, Oh my God, I've been on birth control for two decades. I don't even know what it means to like be in my, you know, ovulation. I don't even know what my fertility looks like, what it feels like. And I'm trying to have a baby, you know, it's, and, and I only have a few years to make all of this happen before I start to get into a very risky territory um, with giving birth, particularly to a first child, which is the riskiest birth typically. Um, 
And I think this is latent. Unfortunately, this is just something below the surface. It's like bubbles up in these weird kind of reactions to like trad women, for example. Or there was that picture, um, I don't know, that went around on Twitter of that like really beautiful blonde family. It was like a, a woman with her like seven kids, you know, and people just freaked out about it. They were like, this is horrible. This is the worst thing. You know, this is the worst thing anybody could do. How could these people possibly be having this many kids and people throw the environmentalist thing in, you know, they throw the feminist thing in. Um, but there's a really strong kind of anti-natalist uh, cultural paradigm on the left. And it puts women in a weird spot uh, where they're suppressing or, you know, looking towards other kinds of forms of value uh, and meaning rather than going inward and getting in touch with their bodies and what the drives of their bodies are telling them to do. Unfortunately, you know, for me, I've tapped into the drives of my body. And guess what? I'm like, oh, I don't want to be a capitalist subject. I want to be outside of that entirely. I want to be at home raising my children. And that doesn't make me a very good Protestant. It doesn't make me a very good, yeah, like capitalist. Um, in fact, it teaches me that I have everything I already need to make the life that I want. and what becomes most important then is finding my partner, finding a man, which is also not very like popular to talk about. Um, so I think that there's just so many things that kind of create these psychological aversions to coming into the body. And it's, it's just the, the cost of that for women is really high if you got it wrong. If you're one of those people who just happens to know for sure that you're not going to have a child, all of this kind of mimetic stuff is fine for you because you just realize that the thing that everyone's been telling you to do is the thing that you wanted to do all along. Yeah. But if you're a woman who really does want to listen to that drive to have a child, ah, I mean, there's just so much pain. Is there like a somewhere hiding in the corner of Reddit, like a uh, a spiritual movement that encourages women to not take birth control, you know, apart from the the Christian go? Well, I was just gonna say, apart from the religious institutions that are like go forth and multiply because you're a woman and that's your job, but women who are looking at it from more of a, a naturalistic perspective of it's beneficial for us if we uh, experience, go through these things, experience the ebb and flow of these desires to reproduce, to have children, that there's some spiritual benefit to that. Almost, I'm thinking of an equivalent as like, you know, no fat with, with yeah. men, like men's movements, right? It's like, no, you shouldn't not masturbate because the God says that it's wrong. There's actually, actually real mental, physical, spiritual benefits to uh, abstaining from masturbation. And I'm wondering if there's some equivalent uh, movement, cultural movement with women of being like, don't take birth control, embrace your, embrace your body. You know, there's, 
there's physical and spiritual benefits to that. Is that out there somewhere that I'm not aware of? You know, you could start I, it, Raven. You can have that idea. No, I give it to actually, you right now. No, that's that's my that's my thing. Actually, I would yeah. say is, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to kind of, you know, declare myself as some leader of, of some sort of, you know, group as yet. But that's kind of what I see myself doing, um, and wanting to flush out uh, my own spiritual metaphysical and like philosophical position on some of these things so being the inheritor of the egg being the inheritor of the womb being the receiver of like of sperm and also being the one who gives birth and so birth also as like a metaphysical or a philosophical question what does that mean where do we find it elsewhere how can we understand it as a symbol um, all of those things. And then also thinking about human potential. Uh, this is something that my friend, oh, he pointed out, I was, you know, pontificating about all of this stuff as I do. And he was like, Raven, this really reminds me of the logic of the bodybuilder movement, where they talk a lot about, you know, building your body for it to reach its full potential, right? And you re renounce everything that has a cost on your body and basically restricts it in its capacity to reach this, this peak potential. So you give up alcohol, you give up smoking, you give up sugar, you drink a bunch of eggs. Oh. You slunk them. <laughs> you, you slunk the eggs. eggs. You slunk the eggs. Um, and I was like, oh, my God, this is a really interesting connection. Because I think in many ways, uh, how I have been conceiving of this is of the matter of human potential, of female potential, of the realization or the actualization of fertility, and how that actually in a, a bodybuilding type way does relate to not drinking, not smoking, not sleeping like irregularly. Um, being very attentive to your your cycles. Um, so that means not being on birth control that interrupts the hormonal changes in your body. And also it it means a kind of keen excitement, interest, curiosity about pregnancy. pregnancy is is one of these kinds of transformative experiences. Uh, I think, Women get to go through many metamorphoses. This kind of goes back to the idea of the female body changing con continuously over time. Um, and each pregnancy is a new world. Like there's commonalities, but each pregnancy has some differences to it. And a woman's mind, you know, and body changes physiologically when she holds her baby and when she breastfeeds. And there's just so much going on there that I think is like so like rich to be understood from a metaphysical perspective. And I don't want it to be trite, you know, or whatever that like fixates on uh, the body in this way that kind of uh, like cuts the body apart from the person. I think that that's something that feminism has kind of moved into where it like reduces the woman to the vagina or reduces the woman to even like just the vulva or the breast, you know, the exposure of the breast or, um, 
just the facade of the of the female body. So I'm like, I don't want to get into that. I think that's a trap, a potential trap. And I think also this happens in the the male uh, version of this, where they get really hyper focused on the aesthetic, and they don't really tap into the process of transformation that you're going through internally that's being realized through this imminent corporeal flesh that we have the gift of inhabiting in, in this life. So there's definitely a human potential thing kind of thread threaded into this um, that I find interesting. But yeah, there was something that as we were talking about like women and the various ways that women have been defined throughout the ages and that they're continuing to be defined. Like what is a woman? That's still a, a question that's very much up in the air these days. And it feels a little bit like a similar phenomena with God and the process of identifying the God of the gaps. So mm-hmm. back in the day, uh, God was responsible for everything. And then as science gradually determined the mechanisms by which things behaved, God got smaller and smaller and reduced down to just, you know, well, God is everything that we don't understand now but, uh, through science. It feels like maybe a similar thing is happening with the definition of womanhood now, where, I mean, just to reduce it down to biological sex characteristics, whereas before it was a, a whole, a whole lot more in terms of like, sociocultural function and personality traits and things of that nature and the archetypal, the uh, mythopoetic uh, role of women and mothers and things of that nature to reduce it down to this question of, do you got the equipment or not seems reductive and, and contra- contrary to the purposes of, pretty much all feminism, I would say, as I understand it. Yeah, it's really quite bizarre because um, there's like this twofold thing going on. We talked about this earlier where you have this like hyperfixation on the head and the avatar, which I think gets people into this situation where they're very interested in the exterior like the outside of their membrane, right? And the way that it looks and how it defines them and how other people perceive it and how they perceive the outside of others. Um, And that does kind of change the relationship to the body where it gets cut up, you know? It's like cut up, cut off the breasts, like cut up, cut off the vulva. Like, you know, it becomes very much this like, almost like the gaze just fixates on the hypernormal kind of stimulation of certain parts of the body and accentuates or exaggerates those, those aspects as being all encompassing um, or yeah, reduces. And that's so weird because in a sense, it's, it's very scientific materialist, right? To, to, to delineate, to slice, to categorize, to cut, to focus on only that, which is perfectly imminent and can be described uh, using functional language as to what it does. And it, it almost is what it does. There's no room for any other kind of purpose. Um, there's no room for any kind, other kind of meaning in that, in that metaphysics. And it's, I mean, it, it can understand why people are nihilistic and ironic 
and uh, cynical. I mean, when you live in that kind of world, I mean, it's um, it's almost like the vacuum uh, where it's very difficult, I think, to live when you are disconnected from your form. Very reductive, yeah. It's terrible. It is. Not a fun way to live. I've lived that life before. Where I that know. was that was my perspective, my worldview. It's not a fun way to, to live. Uh, something that we that you touched on before in terms of the uh, the changes that you undergo as a woman as you have these experiences of pregnancy, motherhood, you know, and all of the things that come along with that, breastfeeding and stuff. I actually had an interesting experience one time on a meditation retreat. So I was doing a seven day meditation retreat on death. So it's called within the tradition I practice in, it's called Marana Sati or mindfulness of death. And we were doing a a wide variety of exercises to try to uh, reflect on death, come to a, a more felt sense of what it, what it's like to be a being that is going to die, those sorts of things. So as I sat through this retreat and I I reflected on this death, I did a variety of things in order to try to really induce that uh, the imminent sense of my own demise. One of those things was to go out into the mountains in California at night alone. And while I was out there, I encountered an animal that... I don't know what it was, but it like I heard it walking. I shine my light out there. I saw two green eyes. I saw him disappear, and I saw him pop up closer. And I, in that moment, I had no idea what I should do in order to preserve my own life, or whether or not I was going to be able to. I didn't know whether to run or to stay still, to be loud or quiet, to shine the light, to to not shine the light. I had no idea what to do. And I had to sit with this imminent possibility of my own death because it could have been a, it could have been a mountain lion very easily. There were mountain lions where I was. When I came back to the retreat, like the next day, that was a pretty profound experience. And I sat and I became extremely concentrated. And at some point I it's really hard to describe it in my mind's eye. I looked down and I had breasts and there was a child at my breast and I was nursing it. Or at least I thought that I was nursing it. I actually don't know now whether or not I was the mother or the child. The perspective was that of the mother Mm. and nursing the child But I mean, that was a transformative experience for my practice of what we call metta or loving kindness. The sense of loving kindness that I had in that moment for this child was overwhelming. And it's still an experience I draw upon when I'm practicing, when I'm practicing loving kindness meditation, trying to send out love and caring to the world. Uh, That was a transformative experience. And I wasn't even actually a mother, right? In that moment, I mean, it was indistinguishable from having been the mother because I was in a very deep state of concentration. But I mean, that was a transformative experience for me. And to think that 
there are real changes and our world would be a completely different place culturally, socially, if there were more experiences of motherhood. Like, I don't know if the percentage has gone down in terms of the num the percentage of people at any given time who have given birth, let's say, right. Out of the total population. But I have to assume that it's gone down for our generation significantly and probably the generation before us as well. I think that that has profound, you know, psychological impacts on, on women and in turn the societies that they participate in. Uh, for you, I mean, what what are some of the things that you found in your own exploration of this that you think will change for yourself? Like you obviously desire, you've said this, you desire to have children. What is that desire born of? What sort of transformation are you seeking? Is there, is it more that you're drawn to it or are you driven to it? Hmm. Oh, I mean, I'm driven to it. You're driven to it. It's, it's an internal. It's like, it's like the core of my ambition as a person. It's, it's, it is my ambition. And I think that this connects me to the matriarchs of history. Um, women have sought power through their lineage, through their children. Um, I mean, you see this in the Bible, in the Old Testament, there are figures uh, I think Rebecca is the one who she really gets involved with, with Jacob, <laughs> like the situation with um, his father and kind of situating him in such a way that he can actually get his blessing and go to kind of seed this great nation and, you know, Jacob becoming Israel. Right. And is, you know, and that being the source of the of the nation of Israel in, in terms of its lineage. So I think that you can see these examples when we kind of get into the perspective of the women of history, which depending on the text that you're working from is, is more like glimpses. But you get this idea that ambition for a woman was very connected to her children, the amount of children that she had, who she had children with, and the talents, capabilities, and uh, world that those children were inheriting. So I think that that's something I have just found myself burrowing into. Like my ambition, I've always been very ambitious. That's just been part of my disposition as a person, very much someone who's like driven to, to move and to change things and to bring forth my vision of the world often failing, you know, as people who are ambitious and young often do. Um, it was directed in different kind of towards different interests, towards different visions. And I think with quarantine, something that's happened to me is all of these other pulling forces, all of these other possible uh, ways that I could channel that ambition have dissolved. And what was left in all of that uncertainty, what I knew that I was always going to be driven to do was to go through the transformative experience of becoming a mother. And when I had that insight, I was just like, well, I guess might as well just, I mean, like you can't turn back from it. Essentially it was, this is the core. 
And I had this intuition as well that part of it is about adultification, right? This process of becoming and moving out of my kind of extended adolescence and turning into an adult woman, which I think for me is deeply connected to birth uh, and becoming a mother. And I suspect that when I've moved through that process, I will have some kind of wisdom and understanding that I don't have now. Mm -hmm. And I could never fabricate that it's, it's only something that I can walk through as a kind of initiation. And once I have had that experience, I will be able to reflect on what it, what ha it means that I had this kind of prophecy or this drive and that I have moved through the risk of that experience and moved through all of the emotional uh, and kind of identity challenging aspects of something like becoming a mother. And also I think having a connection to my own mother, which is the other thing that kind of really impacted me was losing my mother at, at 19 years old, um, basically put me in a position of never really knowing who she was, never being able to have a conversation with her about who, you know, she was apart from being a mother, but also what it was like for her to become a mother and to see her children grow and how her identity changed and her sense of her purpose in life. All of those questions go unanswered by her voice from her corporeal form. But the thing that I think I can do is empathize. Like what you're saying, you know, of like going into this, almost this like imminent experience where you take on the perspective of something else and suddenly you can understand it so deeply that it would be as if, and this, you know, connects to my, my acid trip where like I became my mother in this very literal way. And I realized that like, I am becoming her and in doing so I'm connecting to her in a way that um, even a conversation, you know, wouldn't really have been sufficient to embody. And it's really walking through the life of my mother and seeing it from her perspective or trying to, um, that gives me this connection that otherwise I don't think that I would ever get to talk to her about those things in my life. Um, you know, way so, of answering questions that, you know, you won't ever get the chance to ask. It's very interesting. I like it. So you, I would, I'm going to put some words in your mouth for a second and you can challenge me if I'm wrong. You would reject the, uh, the notion that men are the one who have kind of thrust the, the reproductive responsibility onto women as their primary utility. You think that that's born more so from uh, being a biological woman. Is that right? That's such a weird way to think of that. I mean, it's, it's, it's what so is strange. the way that I said it? Yeah. I mean that perspective, cause some people, I mean, that's totally something that honestly, I think a lot of that has to do with the recent history that we've inherited, which has also included a lot of gender conflict. Um, even, you know, we think of our like mothers or grandparents, but like 
I mean, in the, I mean, it's particularly like I'm more familiar with like what's what was happening like kind of in England and in Europe, but uh, women were getting educated and women were starting to get involved in politics and they were writing under male pseudonyms and they were getting involved in philosophy. They were beginning to do science. Uh, this was particularly the case in England where there was just such an excess of resources being drawn into the aristocracy that people just didn't have to work in the same way. Um, and a lot of that benefit went to women, to daughters. Uh, they were, they were taught Latin, you know, they were like, they were smart. They were smart women and they, they created stuff. They made a lot of things. And I think that, um, that is something we've kind of inherited. We've inherited the way that men during those times dealt with the fact that there were women who were not just being educated for, you know, the value of, of the male status, but they were being educated and then not getting married. You know, you think of like the Bronte sisters, like writing in England and living their kind of spinster life together. And I think that there is a way in which that was seen as uh, maybe, maybe a kind of sign of the greater changes to come and tapped into anxiety that I think anybody probably at the time was experiencing as well. I think there's something in male, uh, human psychology where we want to scapegoat uh, towards certain demographics of people or certain individuals' um, conditions <laughs> that are kind of outside of any group that we're all just kind of having to cope with. And uh, women being kind of portrayed in these ways that we're trying to keep them in where they had been historically, their, their places to, in the hearth, um, in the home, taking care of the domestic affairs. And uh, I think before that condition was the case, um, men and women kind of accepted their station in life because they were both condemned. I mean, both men and women have been condemned to work the labor uh, that they were respectively tasked with. And this idea of mobility, this idea that we could be anything that we want to be, this idea that education can allow us to transcend uh, drudgery is, is all very new. And uh, we're in that kind of extended history. That's not just from yesterday, but is actually kind of part of the enlightenment that we've inherited. Um, and so I, I think that it's, a lot of it is more due to that. Um, and in other periods of time, I think it's fluctuated. I think that in some, in some time periods, women have been excluded explicitly. Uh, Camille Paglia really points to this in Greek society. Um, women were, I mean, and she even theorizes that it was actually excluding women and turning away from women and men creating their cult of masculinity where the male was kind of put as the muse uh, and worshipped and seen as like the highest form that allowed for this like insight uh, and kind of brilliance of male creativity to arise. So there is also this dynamic where men turning away from women is part of their initiation into the world of men. And I think sometimes that is 
uh, enforced or, or like a line is drawn with a kind of sexist perspective. Um, but then on the other hand, you have the women who are just like talking about how dumb the men are and, you know, how, you know, like, so, uh, I just think, you know, who was writing the history books, like the tradition of women has been oral and that obviously has a very different kind of mark on reality. Um, it, the mark on reality is healthy pregnancies. The, the mark on reality is uh, like smooth family relationships, good marriages, like good, just, you know, political or social decisions, um, making it through tough times. That women have been very attentive to changes um, that bring more risk to the family. And we're very good at like kind of figuring out or having an intuitive kind of premonition about how to protect the lineage. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's a complex issue. I don't think that it was something that men chose for women. It's more of the post hoc kind of rationalization of what that means, that there are these two different sexes. Mm, I like it. Uh, what do you think that the, the adoption of that way of thinking has done to male-female relationships in terms of our ability to get along with each other, our ability to actually engage in relationships that result in reproduction. I mean, we have a, at the same time that we have what some may say overpopulation, which we can debate whether or not that's actually the case. uh, There's also fertility crises in a lot of developed nations. And that's born of a, a wide variety of things, access to technology, the social uh, narrative that we should be working and, you know, productive members of society, even women. And that inherently oftentimes reduces fertility rates, but on the interpersonal level, just on one-on-one, the ideas of uh, feminism, things of that nature, what do you think that that's done to the relationship between men and women? Yeah. Well, I think, I think in some ways I would argue that feminism is a symptom, but this is just a more general thing where like, uh, the ideologies or the explanations that arise are symptomatic of, of like greater changes that are happening in the environment. And then people once again, kind of scapegoat certain manifestations, uh, in order to try and cope with what is really some sort of greater change that they uh, have merely inherited and cannot actually truly escape. Um, and I think feminism has really reinforced a certain kind of perspective on that change that has had a very confusing effect on people. Mm-hmm. And that's putting it nicely. I mean, I honestly think that it's ruined people's lives um, in a really tragic way. I think that there's a great deal of tragedy um, in what's happening between the sexes because, and maybe this is a romantic notion, but I mean, I was raised on 90s sitcoms and, you know, chick flicks, rom-coms, like there is this 
there's this deeply seated idea in uh in the in the stories and in the ways in which we think about romance as children uh that I think has been defiled by a lot of the ideological positions that millennials and now zoomers are kind of inheriting as revolutionary acts uh and i think that that's really part of it too is this like drive towards novelty and novelty being equated with revolutionary change and the old ways as being trite and uh you know archaic uh and the need like the just this like almost kind of crazed necessity to embrace and re what is completely and totally new and reject anything that has this tinge of continuity with deep history and that feminism kind of fits into that uh it's like proposing this new way forward for women um and then men also sign up for it too and i think that that's kind of complex in its own right um because I think a lot of men want to do what's right by women because they're actually good men who are not sexist uh, and really are curious about women uh, and really do want to understand their experiences and want to support their work, want to see their voices heard. Um, they want to, I mean, I think in some cases they want to like protect and care for the women in the world around them. and. They feel very drawn to that kind of role or, or relationship with women, even women who are not, they're not romantically interested in or they're, they're, they're in a kind of friendship, almost like a brother to sister relationship. There's this very um, amicable, amicable way that men extend um, their, their help and their, their kindness to women. And now, because we have these like ideological lenses, those things are seen as like suspicious kinds of behaviors it's called mansplaining you know it's considered to be uh something to suspect you know and men then withdraw you know from doing those types of things or they just don't know what to do um and then in some aspects of the kind of you know, manosphere or whatever women once again kind of become these evil creatures you know that are like the devil you know who are withholding um what to these men they like deserve which is like sex and and reproduction or the good life or whatever like life. women become yeah. women become the gatekeepers of that which men are uh you know destined to kind of need in order to be validated in reality which I also think is a terrible dynamic. Um, and there's all of these in, these insights that I think men need to have about their relationship to women and that women need to have about their relationships to men and the, the kind of ideologies that put notions in your head before you think about them yourself really lead you astray, um, lead, lead people astray in general about what those dynamics, what the signals of those dynamics mean, instead of just playing and investigating and trying things out, um, which would have been the 
historical situation, you know, you would have like gone out and like seen what it was like to interact with different kinds of people. You would have formed your own models. You would have talked to, you know, the women in your life or the men in your life. You would have tried to figure out how to navigate your relationships, maybe turn to a religious text or two, a novel, um, to kind of build your own idea. And now it's like, before you even ask to know, someone is telling you, which I think is like extremely tragic uh, because that becoming uh, is, I think, at core of what is like mysterious and beautiful about going through the full potentiality of your life cycle as a person. It's that investigation from your own perspective. And I think intimate relationships, particularly romantic ones, because they, there's a singularity aspect to them where they not only have, you know, the kinds of intimacy of friendship and uh, the intimacy of, of like maybe work, doing work with somebody, but they also have this potentiality of like long-term partnership. And in some cases, the potentiality of bringing forth life into the world. And that's so dense. It's like the egg yolk. You know, it's where all of the things kind of come together and dwell in the singularity. And so to be able to investigate that secret world that only you and this other person can occupy uh, and really live through the identity and like physical and spiritual metaphysical transformation that can, yeah, that can result in a literal being many literal beings like running around and making themselves in the world, I think is like one of the most uh, beautiful kind of gifts of, of, of like human intimacy that one who is called to that path um, can be so fortunate to accept and to be driven towards. And uh, the fact that people are like, have all of these things now mediating their capacity to actually live forth that kind of mythopoetic life with another person um, is just deeply tragic. And I, I don't know. It's really sad. <laughs> it is. I think that it's become more dangerous to try things basically in your relationships, especially between the sexes, between uh, you know, people with different cultural backgrounds, things of that nature. There's, there's not a, a way, there's no social mechanism by which we can explore in a way where you're, there's like bumpers that keep you within the lane, but give you latitude to move around within it. Uh, those have kind of been removed and there's ditches on both sides that are, have fire inside of them and you'll burn and perish if you fall into them. So you better stick on the straight and narrow. That's how it feels at yeah, least to me. Very conservative. Yeah. It's very, it's very like rigid and um, fragile it and it's very, yeah, it's very sad. But my, my advice, Let's hear I have found, I have found as a woman, as a woman who knows what she wants, People are very receptive to me. Like I have basically so much choice 
Um, it's insane. So like the dynamic that has occurred now is that there's a scarcity of women uh, who know what they want in terms of like romance and sex. Um, and there are so many men who basically, they don't, yeah, they're like not bothered or, or moved by feminism. Like they don't, they don't believe it. They just like know for themselves because they're more antisocial. That goes back to this idea of like, uh, people being overly socialized, like a lot of men are more antisocial and they just don't conform to what other people tell them to be period. Um, and they know themselves and they're on a process of discovery for themselves and they do it in a radically independent way and they would be formidable mates. Um, and you can find them. I find them all the time. I find good men all the time. Like I am, I feel like I am surrounded by good men mm. and I kind of have I just like can choose whoever I want. Basically. <laughs> I love it. Oh man. No, nobody really approaches me. Like it really is in the hands of women. Like I really think that women taking on responsibility for choosing and going for the men that they're interested in and seeing it through is kind of one of these ways that you can kind of like hack the dynamic is um, go find the men that you're, that you are interested in and then go spend time with them. Men are very accepting of women just like in their milieu is what, is what I found in the communities that I run in. They're like excited to see a woman. They're like, Oh my God, there's a woman here. Great. And they're very accommodating and they're, they're very, um, curious. And I've made a lot of wonderful friends and there's never been, I've never been like excommunicated or anything for, you know, rejecting somebody sexually if they did happen to tell me that they had a crush on me or something. That's often a dynamic that you just have to kind of move through uh, when you're of reproductive age and, you know, all of those things exist. But once you do, like people are like, oh yeah, that's fine. You know, uh, I'll be your friend. I think we glitched out. But you can, with me? you can kind of like, hack. Um, hack the system if you're a woman and uh, you know go after what you want and get it <laughs> that's my advice for the women out I there of, <laughs> I, yeah I think a lot of babies are going to be born from this podcast so thank you Raven <laughs> I appreciate it very much <laughs> yeah thank you uh, this was lovely oh great Glad you enjoyed it and look forward to speaking yeah. again. Of course. Love Thanks for listening. If you'd like to see more from Breaking the Frame, please visit breakingtheframe.org. There you'll find writings, guided meditations, events, and other resources for learning to navigate between worldviews.